Hello all, and welcome to Living Under a Rock, your favorite podcast that is all about the classics, what you need to know but probably don't. I'm your host, Lauren Garnett, and today we'll be digging into the history, music, and culture of the legendary Grateful Dead with our guest and ride-or-die deadhead, John Garnett, who is also my awesome uncle. We will be digging into everything that is the dead and eventually how to introduce yourself to some of their music. So sit back, stick around, maybe grab yourself a drink, and let's dive into the truly rich and interesting history of the dead, as well as how to start your journey into becoming a deadhead that will hit more towards the end. Hey, I'm John Garnett, and I am Lauren's uncle, and her father is my twin brother, Tom, and we're knuckleheads born in the early 60s who got to be introduced to the best music ever made when we were teenagers in the mid-70s. It was a great time. Part of that was uh, we had an older brother who started going to Grateful Dead shows in the mid-70s and kind of got slowly sucked into that. So that's who I am, and that's my relation to that particular band. Well, I know you've also dabbled in your own cover bands. Don't be shy, John. Tell us about them. And I'm, I'm also a musician in play. I've had various Grateful Dead bands that I've led and play other types of music as well. So I have a good understanding of, of sound and instruments and amps and all that stuff as well, which the Grateful Dead are very cutting edge on. Yeah, I really want to get into that later. The Grateful Dead's legacy of sound and sound technology. But first, we have never really talked about this topic together as a whole. So I'm really excited to dig into it with you today. So to start off, I want to touch with you on what the band and fans were like before you joined. It was a smaller core crowd and it would slowly grew in the 70s. But for the most part, they could count on uh, five to 10,000 people in any city they would go to. Of, of hardcore fans. And a lot of those fans were the same ones that they were on, they'd be on tour and their VW buses and their double decker buses and kind of psychedelic painting. And they, they'd pull in from town to town. And then you'd get some people who were like kind of interested and would just show up like you or me when the band came into town. And it was a very, it was, it, it was a type of fan base that was so dedicated that they were really, they liked what they liked. I feel as if those are all the fans that we picture and hear about, but I feel as if you've entered at a pivotal moment for the Grateful Dead, where the landscape of the music and fans all really began to shift, right? It really changed in the 1980s. Right when I started to come in, there was just generally more attraction from college kids and the like of the band. And then, so that the show started to get difficult to get into and a little more problematic, but it really changed in 1987 when they put out an album called In the Dark. And there was a song called Touch of Grey on that album that became a top 10 hit and went in heavy rotation on MTV. And then their crowd size just doubled. And they, they became a full-blown stadium band with, and a lot of the, the you had the core old school deadheads who were, who were more into the peace and love and, and the, 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 the old school approach to the dead shows. And then half the people were just brand new young people of my age back then in their early twenties who just went there for the party. So clearly they got almost mainstream at one point, but before then their sound was revolutionary, unique, or maybe quite frankly, underappreciated. And as I found out, that may have been because one, they're better live, and two, they're kind of an acquired taste at first. What was their approach like 
to playing their music live. The, the, the Grateful Dead were a, a psychedelic jam band at their genesis. And so they, they, their songs were always trippy dippy through the 60s. And they had one particular song that was, you'd call a jam vehicle that starts out with a basic melody. And what was that song called again? It's called Dark Star. And there's not much to the song in a way. It's then that's it. That's the only structure of the song. And then within five minutes, they'd use that song to go in a different direction every night for 30 or more minutes of just experimental music. They would stick with the melodic theme and then get away from it and the band would get away from it together so one one instrument may introduce a thought and then the, the bass or another guitar might follow up or counterpoint that theme and they'd they'd end up going off in these directions that aren't that are not aimless at all but are musically very very difficult as a musician it's very hard for five people to progress a jam without any roadmap. Yeah, that seems like a common theme that the Grateful Dead made things like these long-winded, complicated jam sessions look really, really easy. And the crowd loved them. So why would they stop? So that that's something that they loved the most, especially with LSD and the mind-opening elements of it. And the audience was on the same vibe. People went for those jams. Well, it makes sense that people flock to the concerts for that reason, because you can go home with a completely unique takeaway, something that's completely your own from that night. Did they have any music that you could count on through any concert you went to, any song you could hear night to night, songs that people actually knew instead of their more improv jam sessions? They, they did have normal songs starting in the 70s, country sounding songs, three minute songs, four minute songs, where... The, the middle lead break would be very predictable and only one minute long and be kind of the same every time. And that's very typical to, to other bands and the Eagles, like they have the guitar lead in the middle of the song. The Grateful Dead did have a lot of songs that had traditional lead break where Jerry Garcia would play uh, the guitar lead or the keyboard players would play a keyboard lead and they'd, they'd come back to the verse like any other band, but there are a couple songs and it turned out to be just a couple times or one time per show where they would use one of these jam vehicle songs like Dark Star or later playing in the band or the other one where it was exciting when they broke into that song because you knew there's going to be a takeoff point. All bands have eras though. Did these jams stay with the band throughout their entire career? Did they eventually dwindle, die out, or was just this something that continued for the entire history of the band? Those jams got fewer and farther between starting in the late 70s when they became, you know, a little older and sort of maybe matured their way out of these really long, exhausting jams. And if you were lucky, once per weekend, you'd see them kind of go to a different place near the end. But they were always, they were always about the jam, it, you know, but the, the country songs and the stuff, the traditional songs, they were sort of a salve. They were sort of a relief to hear because you, you they, oh, they can play regular music really well too. I feel like concerts now are really different in that concert goers kind of expect to hear 
the same top five every time they go to a concert. Was this hard for new listeners to get into because they didn't have that consistency to fall back on? These these long these long jams would sometimes wear a, a novice in the audience out, just 30 minutes of noodling, and they didn't know what to make of it. But if you knew the band, you knew they were going, and as I've listened to this music over the years, I'm understanding how these jams work. And so in terms of other bands, like I said, they you typically have a beginning and a middle and the end of a song with maybe a guitar lead. And most 99% of the other bands out there are, are along that traditional range. But the Grateful Dead, for all of those reasons, were able to take the music to another unpredictable level, starting with multiple times a night in the beginning. Well, I can tell as proud of a fan as you are of the dead, you kind of paid your dues and listened to the long enough to get a, to get it, I guess. It takes a little time to get used to that band. And I saw, I, I've always estimated about 85 Grateful Dead shows from the late 70s until the mid 90s, which is by some people's count isn't very many, believe it or not. You really get to, you really get to know the whole scene if you go a lot. It sounds like they definitely went against the grain of what performing is like now. Classics and crowd pleasers, they were really doing what they loved and did not care who liked it or who didn't because they had their core people. And obviously back in the day, audio tech was not nearly what it is today, but I know the Dead played a massive role in elevating live music for us now. Can you explain what made their tour so unique compared to other bands and groups back then? Well, when they first started playing together, you know, electric bands just used guitar amplifiers and for all of their instruments. And then they would sing through a just old school PA public announcement system, maybe a 12 inch speaker on either side of the stage. And it, it generally had the, the clarity of a bullhorn. So the sound at concerts when they first started playing in the mid sixties was, was generally horrible. It was distorted, didn't sound good, often too loud or not loud enough, wasn't clear. And then the, the singers couldn't hear themselves because there weren't special monitors on the stage pointed at the singers. So the singers would sing poorly and out of key because they couldn't hear themselves. I don't know if you've ever tried to sing when you can't hear yourself, but, it, and if you try to sing when you can hear yourself, it's so much easier if you have a good monitor feedback. So they identified early on that the existing um, concert sound systems were bad. And so they put some of their people to work. And over the years, they developed all new concert sound systems. They modified their amplifiers and instruments. They were cutting edge and making every single note they played to be the clearest, cleanest, prettiest sounding note possible, whether it's from an instrument or the drums or from the vocals. Obviously, the band couldn't achieve this goal alone. How did it come to be? Early on, they achieved some success. Their first sound guy named Owsley, and he's the guy who perfected LSD, and he is actually an engineer too. So he started putting together some sound systems to the point where by the late 60s, the Rolling Stones came to San Francisco and they needed to borrow a sound system, and they borrowed the Grateful Dead sound system from the still relatively new, but a lot, they'd already done a lot of work, and the Rolling Stones were blown away by how good the dead sound system was that night in concert and they wanted to buy it. Wow, to think the Rolling Stones wanted the Grateful Dead sound system. What were the logistics of this entire system that you're talking about? It, it evolved to the point where they built a, a wall of sound, which is hundreds and hundreds of speakers behind the band. The band heard the same speakers that the audience did. There were no special monitors and it was a uh, 
It was a huge, expensive sound system that was constantly being developed, and it was it was created so that a quarter mile away you could hear you could hear a pin drop in the microphone clearly. It's it was that sensitive and and great sounding because it was so important for them to sound good um, to their audience. Did this goal of the Dead's come at any cost? Did their success counteract the expenses that this wall of sound, this great wall of sound likely produced? I mean, I'm assuming it was ridiculously expensive. So the the wall of sound was actually so cumbersome and expensive that they had two separate systems and they leapfrogged the system from city to city. That sounds like a lot of work that would require a ton of muscle. Did this have any sort of effect on the band's stamina in the long run? So they had to pay for two walls of sound and two crews. And it, it literally, that was the peak of their sound. And they, they literally disbanded for two years because they were so worn out from sustaining that type of tour that they had to, they kind of broke up for a couple of years. They ended up selling off a lot of that, the wall of sound, um, which is the best amplifiers and, and speakers that were available to, to Pink Floyd. That is definitely a main reason that we can credit the Grateful Dead for such an amazing reputation. We still use all this tech today, right? The, the Grateful Dead established the best concert sound and it can and, and it continues to be that's the model that was created for all the sound that you hear at, at all the great shows today. How did that system change in their later years? How did it become more sustainable? I mean, there's no way they could have kept that going forever. Their last 20 years or they 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 condensed their sound system so they kept the technology really good technology but they were able to make them a lot smaller so instead of having a hundred foot by a hundred foot huge wall of speakers behind them the arrays that you see on the side of stages now where there's a speakers hanging on the right and the left hand of stages now and they're kind of curved those those were created by the grateful dead and those are are now the the sound systems that are used by everybody so it was just part of their 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 quest for perfection in terms of sound which is interesting because you look at them and you think that they're scraggly and their fans are all hippies but they really wanted the best sound possible since the grateful dead was so focused on their live performance audio what was their in-studio work like i know there's a lot a lot to talk about in this subject they were awkward in the studio they were they'd show up with with you know their families and wives and kids and dogs in the music studio and they freaked out the music studios and then they come in and for the most part they drop the ball in the recording studio because they're very they're very antiseptic environments for a band like them as if they're a very organic band okay well let's backtrack why was the dead so used to an organic home-like environment that you're describing yeah the, the Grateful Dead came out of initially playing at, at the Acid Test in Northern California, which is just a big party where they'd set up in the middle of the room. And then somebody, you know, it was, it, LSD was legal at the time and somebody would put a punch bowl in the middle of the room spiked with LSD and everybody knowingly took it, including the band. And the, they formed a relationship with their audience because they were sort of on the same page, if you will, during, you know, due to state of mind and state of consciousness, the Grateful Dead used LSD as a tool to expand their consciousness, both individually and musically. And so from the, from the outset, they were always a performing band and their concerts, they, they went from being a small, small audiences to the largest audiences of the world 30 years later, they counted on that connection to grow their fan base. Wow. <laughs> I forgot LSD was ever even legal. <laughs> but yeah, taking acid with your fans sounds like a pretty surreal experience. It would be hard not to fall under 
a culture such as that one super fast. And I'm honestly confused, though, about their studio stuff. If the band didn't record well, how do we have all this great music now that people can access? So, yes, it was all about the connection between the audience and the band. And, and that grew over the years. And so they they recorded all of their music every they were they had their own recordings of their music they had a, a big tape deck at the mixing board and every single show they had two two track recordings in their history did their fans follow suit in the subject like did they start recording too i feel like there's no way they didn't if they saw the band recording they would want that original audio as well the audiences wanted their own recordings because those recordings that the band made weren't released to the audiences. So the audiences wanted to hear this, the show they just heard. So the audiences snuck in small tape recorders in, in the early 70s and progressively got more technologically um, sound audience taping systems. But the band always was busting people because they didn't want people doing pirated records because people would tape the shows and then they'd actually make albums, LPs out of them and sell them at record stores. And so their lawyers made sure that the people weren't able to tape the shows up until about the mid seventies. And finally, Jerry Garcia and the Grateful Dead said, you know what? We don't care. Once we play it, it's it's not ours anymore. It's out into the public domain. We're going to let these people bring their tapes in. And so the audience had a taping section behind the soundboard for the last 20 years. And there's you'd see hundreds of people recording a show, even though the Grateful Dead were recording the show, because everybody just wanted to have that coveted cassette. So the audience has been always part of the show. Did the band ever figure out a way to functionally record themselves not live? Did they ever figure out a way to have their sound that they have in concert in a studio? They had a very good recording experience where they went into the, the Marin Civic Auditorium and set up on stage and they set up like they were playing to an audience without an audience and they felt more comfortable recording the album. But they never lost their roots in touring, just expanded their skills in recording. They played at the beat of their own drum, if you will. That was really cheesy. <laughs> the Grateful Dead touring just really kind of memorialize the fact that they're not a band to just put out albums and then maybe go on a short tour. They were about the tour. Their, their, their live music was their best music. It was far superior because they were feeling the vibe from the audience and they played legendary three to four plus hour shows. Bruce Springsteen sort of took that model from, and they grew from a, you know, a bar band to a theater band to a arena band to a stadium band and they uh, went from the, the longest sustained growth of any rock band in history. So at the point where they disbanded in 1995, they were the largest grossing touring act in the world. Their format differed quite clearly from other bands and how did their improved recording affect their tours? If they were having better recording, more access to other fans and other fans potentially coming to their concerts, how did that change the landscape? And it really, it really put a lot of pressure on the whole touring system to the point where it literally was one of the reasons where they had to break up because they couldn't go, they couldn't go to cities anymore because they weren't invited because they just had too much, too many people. The circus had too many people in at this point, but they always evolved their sound and their playing and their set list through the years based on their touring. They'd often write a song and perform it after practicing it once or twice and they'd perform it on tour for six months or a year or two years. And then they'd go into the recording studio 
and then they'd record it. And it would be much more, you know, obviously mature recording of the song than it would have been. A lot of bands typically record an album in the studio and then go out and take it on tour. And then lastly, the tour supported a huge organization of, you know, 100 people at the end, huge payroll. They had their, you know, four semi-trucks rolling around offices and warehouses in, in San Rafael, California. Their tour became a, you know, a $50 million per year operation where they were just basically supporting their own company and just trying to, trying to keep it going based on touring. So touring became something that they, they had to do, not so much that they wanted to, to do as much before. And then they had to do it to support their whole ecosystem. And the whole thing just got to be unsustainable and it got to be not as fun for anybody at that point. I mean, nothing that big can be sustainable forever, right? They were just going through the motions just to make their money, which is kind of sad, but it sort of it sort of ties into Jerry Garcia's decline. So as the two, they got bigger as a band and the costs went up as Jerry Garcia's health declined due to you know heroin addiction on his way to, to dying from that. So it's, it's, you know, I could go on forever about their 30 years of touring, but they started out as a small band and ended up as the biggest band in the world. And, and the sound was always great. It's impressive that they kept their quality up for that long. Well, I want to get a little bit into the music now, as from what you've told me and the listeners. It sounds a bit daunting, <laughs> especially with all the live recordings from the band and audience that must be out there on the Internet. How would you recommend a potential fan to introduce themselves to the dead? Totally, totally daunting, daunting for veterans like me. Again, they recorded every single show. I highly recommend that, you know, a good studio album like American Beauty, there are a couple good live recordings that the, that the, the band put out. And these are primers for people who don't want to go into the dark hole of all of the recorded performances, which are now on the internet. But I recommend perhaps American Beauty and there's a, a live album from 1989 called Without a Net. Great recording, a very good snapshot. It's it's in a, a format of a show. It was recorded over six months at different shows. Without a Net is a very good snapshot of where they were at their peak at the late 80s. What about the people that do want to go down the rabbit hole, the people that want to dig, the people that really want to get into the nitty gritty? There's a, a Grateful Dead archive. Archive.org is the Smithsonian Institution archive of, of audio recordings, and the Grateful Dead have their own page there. So if you Google Grateful Dead archive, literally every show, you'll have multiple options between audience report recordings and soundboard recordings. And all I can say is that you know, you might want to start out in 1974, which was the peak of their sound, their best sound, and they were still young and vibrant, and they played the shorter new cowboy songs, and they played the long jam songs. You might go to, for instance, uh, they played a show in Dijon, France, a great show from September 18th, 1974. They played at UC Santa Barbara. Sorry, no slow shows ever, but they played UCSB on, on May 25th, 1974. These are real good starting places where they're at the peak of their power. 1977 shows are very, very well recorded with great performances. So it's almost, you could go to a 74, a 77 or a 1989 show is good starting points and go to almost any show on the archive, Grateful Dead Archive from that year and click on a soundboard recording and put it on a good sound system. You can get a really, 
a full show experience of what they sounded like. They they put out a, an entire box set of their Europe 1972 tour, which is also a, a very good introduction to the band. So don't don't overthink it, people. Just go go to maybe one of those years and and open up a show and try to try to play the show while you're cooking dinner, beginning to end, and just let it fill you up. If you want to jump from song to song, or you can go to one of those albums and listen to their studio stuff. There's there's a lot out there, but there's I would say those albums and the Grateful Dead archive, which is an endless opportunity. Wow, thank you. That's great advice and makes it seem a little bit less overwhelming. <laughs> I wanted to before you go have you share maybe your first Grateful Dead concert experience with my listeners, as we'll never have that opportunity that you and my father did. First show I went to was with your dad and my older brother and his whole crew of deadheads at Poly Pavilion. It was December 30th, 1978. You know, it's funny. It's like, what's with these exact dates? Deadheads are weird. They can, you can actually say a date. You could say like 2973 to me, like this day in 1973. And I go, oh, that's the day that they debuted the Wall of Sound at Stanford University. Great show. It's so weird. 12.30, first show, Poly Pavilion. The very next night, they closed down Winterland, one of their most famous shows ever. So you'd think they'd kind of mail it in with their big, huge show the next night in San Francisco. No, they put on one of the most epic performances ever, but Tom and I were just stoned 15-year-olds out of it, looking for our next ham sandwich at the snack stand, not knowing what was going on. And I remember walking around poly pavilion and walking out a door and then walking out another door and all of a sudden i'm out of the fucking concert i'm out i'm locked out banging on a door security guard opens up i'm like sir sir please i i you know i walked out of the show i have a ticket he's like oh okay come on in well it turns out that tom did the same exact thing 20 minutes later walked out the same door walked the same second door and ended up begging his way back to the show a great story that only twins could tell got a lot of Got a lot of other fun stories I could share, but you know, just like anybody, when you go to concerts, you got to be careful. You got to watch, you know, what you buy. You want to kind of find a feel good place. But a lot of the stories I have to tell about dead shows are from my earlier years and some, some regrettable actions, but you know, Hey, you, you know, you only live once, right? Of course. <laughs> That's so funny. It's like twin telepathy or something. <laughs> I also wanted to ask if you had any visual resources, any movies or documentaries me and my listeners can watch to see what these live shows looked like. I mean, obviously, I feel like I have a picture in my head, but it might be totally off unless I watch something. Yeah, I'd say go to some of these documentaries that are out there. Um, You know, I think that you can, you know, now that streaming is such such a ubiquitous thing in our lives. I think that there's some some good opportunities out there to to see the band play and to hear it in high quality audio format. I highly recommend uh, the Sunshine Daydream documentary of their 1972 Vanita Farm, Oregon show after they got back from the Europe 72 tour. And it's a hot day in Oregon, incredible old school movie viewing of what it was like in 1972 to see a bunch of freaks out in a field and a completely dosed up band on stage playing their playing their butts off. And then another great documentary is called Long Strange Trip. And it's a, a four hour documentary. This isn't based on a concert. This is more where you have interviews and the history of the band. But these are really good streaming opportunities 
you know, take take some time away from your normal Netflix diet and 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 see the band and hear the band in their glory. And I just want to know everybody to know that I know that you know this is a new era and the Grateful Dead are really revered now. Yeah, there's definitely revitalization of the Grateful Dead going on right now. I mean, I walk around campus and I see dancing bears tie-dye. I, I have a bumper sticker on my car that says keep Tahoe bearable with little bears dancing around on it. And I've seen it on like four other Subarus, of course. Um, but I feel like it's cool right now. It just keeps pouring into our generation more and more. So what are your thoughts on that? They're cool. They weren't always cool. They were considered to be grungy and lame and noodly and gross and drug addled. And they were all that at a time when punk and new wave were coming on. And because of what they created and all the jam bands that started in the early 90s, starting with Fish that came out of this, the Grateful Dead have really turned a corner in terms of reputation and, and, and now they're cool. You see a lot of young people wearing tie-dyes and the, with the dancing bears on it. I think it's really cool. I think, you know, it may, be, may be not be the Grateful Dead and John Mayer may not be Jerry Garcia, but Dead and Company can, if they make you happy, Let's just keep this thing going. So support support music and continue to support this type of music that was invented by one of the greatest bands ever. And uh, Lauren, I really appreciate your time. Yeah, of course, John. We will continue to support music. That's what this podcast is for. Trying to keep educating on the things that might be dwindling nowadays. So thank you so, so much for your time. This was really, really awesome. And I'm sure you could tell us a lot more. So maybe we'll have you on again if the listeners want more. But thank you so much. That was an excellent interview. I don't think I could have asked for a better guest for this first show. And I'm just so glad we could kick off this podcast so strong with the band like The Grateful Dead. And a guest like John Garnett, my uncle. I can't believe it. Thank you so much for tuning into today's episode. And I just want to stress to please go ahead and look into all those great resources that John mentioned. I know I'll be digging into them later. And next time on Living Under Rock, we will have a very special guest coming on, my dad, Tom Garnett, to transition us away from old school rock like the Grateful Dead into the new wave that came shortly after, which will be the Talking Heads. Please join us next time. Thank you. Thank you.